Good afternoon. It's the fourth Friday of the month, and that means it's time for Literary Ashland. I'm Michael Neiman. And I'm Ed Battistella. And we should let you know that this is a pre-recorded show, so no calls to the studio, please. <laughs> Today we've got a special guest. Our guest is Steve Scholl from White Cloud Press. He's an independent scholar of Islam and comparative religion. Um, he's lived and traveled extensively in the Middle East after doing graduate studies in Islamic philosophy and history at McGill University. And he's the founding publisher of White Cloud Press right here in Ashland. So welcome, Steve. Welcome. Thanks so much. Good to be here. Well, I was going to ask you how you made your way into publishing and, and came to found White Cloud Press <laughs> back, in the, uh, back in the day. It was an act of desperation. Um, I was in the field of Islamic studies back in the early 1980s, and there were literally thousands of people coming out of with their PhDs, and there were no jobs in the field at that time. My area of expertise was rather esoteric, and so there were even less jobs in, you know, uh, 17th century Shiite philosophy. So I looked around and said, well, what can I do, and uh, how can my skills be transferred to another line of work. And at that time, a friend of mine who had a small publishing house in Los Angeles uh, asked me to come work for him. And that sort of started my, my career. It's, okay. it's People find their way into academic, into publishing in all sorts of interesting ways. It's, uh, it's really sort of amazing sometimes. Yeah, I was, yeah. I was clearly ahead of my time. If I, I, if I was uh, coming out of uh, graduate school today with a degree in Islamic studies, I, I would be in high demand. That's right. Uh, sadly, <laughs> not so yes. much today. Unfortunately. Uh, these, these, these political times shifted right. in a way too late for you, right? Yeah. Okay. So, and so you made your way into publishing the, um, down in the Bay Area? and uh, Actually, in Los Angeles. I started out mm -hmm. in L.A. And... Um, you know, I started doing other kinds of things, uh, working with, uh, I was the editor of a, of a magazine and uh, worked for the Hospital Council of Southern California doing the, their publications. And so everything just sort of blossomed. And, and finally, I actually was working in Santa Cruz for a small publisher. Um, and I was looking at the books we were doing. And I was like, God, I could do, I could do this, you know. And so I was like, okay, the idea for White Cloud was, again, to take my academic interests in world religions and try to do books that were descriptive rather than prescriptive. We're not, mm -hmm. White Cloud is not attached to any religious tradition. Mm -hmm. We're an independent company. But to do books that would explain Hinduism or Islam or, or uh, an aspect of Christianity. And, and sometimes by scholars, sometimes by believers, but in a way that was sort of grounded in sort of serious study but accessible to a, a, a general readership. Mm -hmm. right. and, and you've had some uh, some interesting um, some interesting successes. One that I remember was the was it Islam One Hundred and One? Well, it is, it's approaching the Quran. Well, approaching the Quran, Quran right. yeah. This was this was fun. This was this was a, a a translation of part of the Quran, not the full Quran, but thirty three of the first revelations that came to the Prophet Muhammad. We did this book in 1998 or so, and it was hailed by Houston Smith and Karen Armstrong and other uh, as as the breakthrough introduction, and and we had lots of course adoptions. And then in after 9/11, uh, 
um, I was actually going to the American Booksellers trade show, and a fellow publisher came up and said, hey, I heard about your book on NPR. And I'm like, oh. what do you mean? And, and I, <laughs> what and book? What, what, which book? And your, your Quran, and there's a big story going on. And, and I was like, no, I don't think so. There's so many Qurans out there. And so I think it was yours, and I, I just didn't have a clue what he was talking about. So then I come home, and my phone is just overloaded with messages from CBS and the New York Times uh, saying, you know, we need your, your, your copy of Approaching the Quran. The University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill has assigned it to all incoming freshmen, and a Christian organization has filed a lawsuit against the university claiming that the university is attempting to convert freshmen to Islam. <laughs> and uh, all, so all hell broke out. And I thought this was going to be a story for about a week or so. We were on the front page of the New York Times. We were featured in Time magazine. I mean, every publication in the world, and it lasted for six months. Wow. And uh, we sold an extra 60,000 copies and I wanted to, the next book we were doing at that time was on the Buddha. And I wanted to send a copy of it to the Christian organization to say, here, why don't you take a look at this? I'm sure you can find something <laughs> would, to object you, to here. Would you, would you mind protesting this, yeah, one, yeah, too? this one too? <laughs> so, um, so that led to, I mean, mm -hmm. yeah, that was, that was uh, we, I mean, and the highlight for me was when the Daily Show sent Mo Roca to mm. uh, the University of North Carolina at Chap Al Hill and figured out that the whole university was a, Taliban training center, <laughs> and it was just absolutely hilarious. And uh, you know, he talked. So, uh, so that was a, a great highlight. So, so it sounds like there's plenty to enjoy mm -hmm. about the publishing business. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it has its moments. It's it's also incredibly mm -hmm. difficult and trying. But um, all publishers of smaller publishers are really in it because they have a passion for something. Mm -hmm. now, whatever whatever it is, whether it's literary fiction or ecology or you know spirituality whatever you know so and so mm -hmm. white cloud press is an expression of my interests and my passions yeah you have a unique co-publishing model which is becoming more common and in which authors are partners in the publishing process can yes. you explain a little bit more how that works well this is this is uh, a shift that's happening in all of the arts mm. uh, you see it in in music in film and in publishing and this is what Kickstarter has really started, you know, kind of kicked off. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's so hard to fund the arts, and whether it's literary arts or, again, film or music, mm -hmm. that both producers and individual artists and writers are finding other means of making this happen. Mm -hmm. So what it means for us is that before we start a book, we find the funding for it first. Not mm -hmm. all of, not 100% of the funding, but if we can get 70% of the funding up front, we know that we're not taking a huge financial risk. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we were not the first to do this, but we were uh, early ad adopters. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. We started doing this back in 2002. Mm -hmm. And um, so, and, and now it's the only way we, we, we go. It's the only way we feel we, we can mm -hmm. survive. So the searching for funding then means tapping various possible resources, whether it be foundations, mm -hmm. NGOs, or the author him, herself, yeah, or yeah. something so, like that. And we've that. done everything. We, okay. we, we've had books funded by uh, Kickstarter campaigns. Mm -hmm. One was one book was funded when a, a national women's reading group ordered a thousand copies before press. Mm -hmm. So as long as we find a pathway yeah. 
to um, some kind of financial mm -hmm. security, then uh, then we're good to go. Yeah. Uh, if the book and and this is different from from self publishing or vanity mm -hmm. publishing, we only do eight to ten books a year, mm -hmm. and a book, you know, if it, it doesn't just mean you have to have the right money, you know, for it. It has to be a white cloud press book. It has to yeah. fit our editorial mission. Mm -hmm. We run it by our sales reps to our distributor. If they have to mm -hmm. approve it, there's a whole vetting process. Yeah. So it's still the same traditional publishing. You get the mm -hmm. same uh, copy editing, you know, professional design, all these mm -hmm. kinds of things. But it's done um, in a profit sharing kind of way. So you distribute the risk. We distribute broader. the risk, and, mm -hmm. and so the authors, rather than getting a ten percent royalty, get a fifty percent royalty. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and do you print a fixed copy, a certain number, or do you do print on demand? What are the uh, so technical? Normally, we print between two and five thousand copies for okay. a first printing, based upon advance orders through our mm -hmm. distributor. Okay. Yeah. All right. Thank you. And I guess this sort of you provide a certain amount of quality control and and mission focus to the the project and the the mm -hmm. author is really um much more of a partner in this than in the traditional model where yeah. i mean i remember you know just sort of sending things off and waiting by the phone for the pulitzer committee to call yes yes uh did they call no, <laughs> I'm, sorry. I'm still waiting, waiting for that call. <laughs> um so yeah and it's uh the other thing is i thought part of the older model was sort of, you know, the writer as a recluse who's, you know, kind of does their work and, and they kind of remain somewhat anonymous and that doesn't work anymore. It's more mm -hmm. like the writer as musician. Yeah, the right? writer, mm -hmm. I, I tell writers you have to think like a musician. If you put out a CD and don't tour behind it, who's going to know about your, yeah. your, your music? So it's mm -hmm. the same. Authors have to be very um, uh, entrepreneurial and um, uh, marketing oriented. I believe in, in, within our system, the technical term is having a platform. Having right? a platform. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, it, what's uh, what's on the horizon for White Cloud Press? We've got some new projects coming up. That well, we, we should know about um, new and old. Um, we are doing uh, one of our best-selling books is by Mother Teresa, who. Was recently, right, I know her. Yeah, I mean, yeah, of her. Yeah, she she was, but she was recently canonized by the church, and she's mm. now Saint Teresa. So, we are repackaging uh, her book. Everything starts from prayer, which is a unique book. It's the only book of Mother Teresa's that really focuses on an interfaith orientation. It focuses on her writings on prayer and meditation and silence and service. But um, once I heard that the that she was being sainted. Um, I emailed the Vatican and said, uh, would it be possible for us to use Pope Francis's um, homily th around her canonization? So, And they said yes. And so our new edition includes a foreword by Pope Francis. All right. And uh, so very excited mm -hmm. by that. And then the mm -hmm. other one I'm very excited by is there is a, a Tibetan Buddhist monk who's an American convert, uh, a medical doctor. His name is Barry Kurtzen. And he lives six months of the year in Dharamsala, India, with the Dalai Lama as one of his personal physicians. And then six months of the year, he travels the world doing his teaching work. Mm -hmm. And we're coming out with his book on compassion called No Fear, No Death. And uh, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, is writing the foreword to that book. So we got both this coming up, uh, this fall, Pope Francis and the Dalai Lama with White Cloud Press. Very excited by that. Yeah, that's... <laughs> So you, you guys really have an international uh, 
um, reach as well as as well as publishing yeah. world religions. Yeah, yeah, and we yeah we do um, our our distributor Publishers Group West uh, carries our books internationally, so we do um, we do have sales throughout, and we have uh, and we also do a lot of translation rights deals with mm -hmm. our with our authors. Okay, excellent. Uh, Ashland seems to be. A strange magnet for different publishing ventures. How yeah. what how, how does that happen? Well, um, here's how it happened for us. Um, uh, I was living in you know my my wife and I were living in Santa Cruz after I bailed out of Los Angeles and and you know Santa Cruz was lovely but it was simply just unlivable in terms of uh, cost of living. Mm. And so I'm originally from Oregon. I'm from Corvallis. I'm born and raised in Corvallis. Went to school at the University of Oregon. So I, we started looking up here and we found Ashland. And I'll never forget, I, I didn't really know Ashland, even though I grew up in the state. Um, but I came here, you know, like one evening scouting and I was just sort of, you know, it was like a warm May evening and down the plaza was packed and there was music coming out of everywhere. And I was like, I think this is the place. And and I think, you know, as a publisher, you don't really need to be anywhere, you know. So our, you know, we're not geographically, you know, uh, tied down to any place. So Ashland really became um, a a place that gave us access to create creative artists, a lot of writers. Uh, probably about 25% of our authors are local. And the rest are around the world. Yeah, mm -hmm. we. This seems to be a place that really attracts interesting writers, and a lot of them make their way to White Cloud. I know you recently did uh, a book of uh, Betty Leduc's. Yes, we did Betty Leduc's book, Bountiful Harvest, which mm -hmm. um, is a beautiful, uh, full color book of her artwork um, and her sketches with the local farm workers. Yeah. Um, and it's a it's a it's a great great book, and and. Uh, I just I have to put a put a note out that one of our local authors, Mari Gayatri Stein, uh, we did a couple books with Mari, The Buddha Smiles and Puddle Moon, a children's book, and uh, sadly Mari passed away this past week. Oh. And um, you know, just so uh, a good thought out to, to she was such a uh, uh, a loving presence in the, our community and did so much uh, good work in so many ways. Um, mm -hmm. So um, you know, kind of. It's a little bit um, sad, sad, yeah, deeply yeah. saddened by this mm -hmm. this loss. It's yeah, it's always tough mm -hmm. when we lose someone like that. Mm -hmm. um, well, on, on a maybe more cheerful note, I know that um, you you also do a lot of yeah, you have the sort of main editorial duties for for White Cloud. And how do you how do you see your relationship with authors as an editor as opposed to a publisher? I mean, yeah, the the editing phase is actually it's it's usually quite lovely um i've never really gotten into, into like uh uh bare knuckle arguments <laughs> over, <laughs> over things with with authors uh, authors will will sometimes you know i i don't want to change this or that right. you know nobody and, edits my stuff yeah <laughs> but um i always go back to them and say listen you know here's a story i when we first started off, we, we used an, a, an agency in New York City um, for our foreign rights deals. And mm -hmm. I went there to meet with them, and I'm sitting there waiting to go in, and there's Norman Mailer's new mm -hmm. manuscript sitting there, and it's being copy edited. 
And so it's like every writer needs an outside voice, mm-hmm. an outside eyeball onto it. So, so that's the way we 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 tell you know authors everyone needs to be looked at for copy editing. And the the job of a good copy editor is not to change your voice or not to change your message, right. but just to make sure that everything is as grammatically tight. You know, most copy editors are just Nazi, you know, grammar Nazis. You know, mm-hmm. they're they're anal <laughs> they just love that right. you know uh, you know several uh, of my editors say they, they just can't even read the newspapers because there's so many it just yeah. drives them crazy but but that's again that's the difference between self-publishing and uh, tra- uh, traditional publishing yeah. is mm-hmm. providing those kinds of service yeah. to make the author's work the very best it can be yeah. mm-hmm. I remember the old copy editor's t-shirt that Ask the question: Is there a hyphen in anal retentive? <laughs> but it, it sounds like your your vision of editing is really to keep the integrity of the the author's vision and ask them a lot of questions and sort of guide them along yeah. through the process rather than mm-hmm. saying fix this sentence kinds yeah. of stuff. Yeah, and that's and that's the 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 goal of because usually usually if a book comes to us that is you know, poor, poorly written, I, I was like, well, I just, you know, it's, I just reject it, you know. Mm-hmm. But if a book comes that is, you know, solid and there's definitely something there that, that relates to our, our mission, um, I'm then really willing to work with uh, with an author on the editing phase to, again, help them, you know, mm-hmm. massage the book to get mm-hmm. it to, to, um, to, to its very best form. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. What do you enjoy most about the publishing world, the publishing process, your project there? Well, it's interesting. I actually took a sabbatical from White Cloud Press for about six years. Mm-hmm. And um, and when I left, I just said, I'm never going to get back into publishing. <laughs> I, I, I'm done with this crazy business. And uh, But circumstances changed, and I got back into, the, in, into it. And what I found was that I actually love certain things about being in publishing. And... And really, I think it is just the um, the excitement that comes when a new idea and a new author comes into your world. For me, uh, the the most recent thing that we have added a really strong uh, line of books on biomimicry. And biomimicry is um, how science we can look to nature for ideas on how to fix problems. Mm-hmm. And so we did this book called The Shark's Paintbrush. Right. And this book changed my life. And it's like, okay, it showed me that I, I've gone from being an eco-pessimist to an eco-optimist because um, biomimicry is showing that really every problem that we have can be solved if we turn to nature. nature. And uh-huh. uh, uh, so that's... That gives me great excitement. Is like, mm-hmm. and so once we did that book, we started putting out into the biomimicry world. We we want more books, and so we have, uh, we now have uh, another book that came out um, called Realigning with Nature, and we have a book on uh, teaming coming out, and we have uh, two more in the works after that. So we want White Cloud to be known as the, um, the home for biomimicry mm-hmm. literature. So you're adding, in that sense, an environmental yes. angle to that. Okay, yeah, so, and that's excellent. Which, it, which really fits uh, our founding ethos. You mm-hmm. know? Oh, yeah. It's yeah. nature, the world, yeah. the holism. Yeah. I think it yeah. all it makes a lot of sense to, to move in that direction. Mm-hmm. That's 
And and I was going to go back though. I mean, it it seems um, you know when when I was you and I were in college, probably around the same mm-hmm. decades. Um, and I don't recall running into many people who were scholars of Islam. So I'm mm-hmm. just curious how you got interested in comparative religions yeah. in Islam well, way back in, when. Yeah, way back when. Well, I grew up in a non-religious environment. My family was not anti-religious. It was just was irrelevant, I think, like mm-hmm. a lot of folks in that, that time. Mm-hmm. Um, I, well, I do say that we did have a, a religious practice. We had a, tent, a little altar in the in the in the living room, and we gathered around it every night. And we turned it on, and we watched it. And you know, we were a Leave It to Beaver you know, kind of family. And uh, you know, uh, Father Knows Best, the Donna Reed Show, all that kind of bonanza. Mm-hmm. So that was my that was really. Mm-hmm. So when I turned sixteen, I'm listening to the music of Van Morrison and Donovan and Bob Dylan, and they're my they were my spiritual they were my spiritual teachers. It was their music, and. And I was like, what is this religious stuff? What's this spirituality stuff? And so, and I didn't know, I didn't know a thing, you know. So, I mean, I, I was so ignorant. I picked up our family Bible, which nobody had touched, you know, since, Dusted my, it off. since <laughs> my grandmother died and uh, started reading Genesis and was getting into Leviticus. And I was like, isn't there a guy named Jesus? I, I didn't know that there was a Jewish scripture and a Christian scripture all in that mm. one book. I was, I mean, I didn't know anything. Mm. And, uh. So, but I was touched by, you know, a quest for, uh, I, I think I'm just sort of have a, a spiritual nature of some kind. And I, I was fascinated and I, that led me to looking into all the different religions of the world. And, uh, I am not, again, I'm not a, a, a practicing anything, but I love spiritual research and, um, so I uh, and the Sufis, the mystics of Islam, really caught my interest. Rumi, especially mm-hmm. Ibn Arabi, and so those guys led me into Islamic studies. Mm-hmm. Okay. Did did you did you learn Arabic? I studied Arabic for five years. Mm-hmm. I went to Cairo to try and master Arabic, um, and I didn't. <laughs> so so um, I go to Morocco quite frequently, and I, I take small group tours of mm-hmm. you know, lead people over there. And I can, I can have a fairly coherent discussion about mystical concepts, but I have really difficulty ordering at the restaurant. So, oh, okay. so my my Arabic is classical Quranic Arabic, not spoken dialectical I, Arabic. In the, yeah, you know, I do remember uh, students who took Arabic at Trinity College having the same problem. It yeah. was the book, the book right. Arabic, yeah. and the street Arabic is so Very dramatically different. different. Yeah. Also, from place to place. And, yeah, so, and if you go from go from Morocco to Egypt, there's a huge difference Big even difference, there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah that's like knowing Latin mm-hmm. and going to uh, to mm-hmm. Spain. Yeah. 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 Um, so, well, you mentioned Bob Dylan is one of your your spiritual. Yes. Um, Entry points, and I, I remember from the um, the Hannon Library Book Festival yeah. that you've got a Bob Dylan project going on. Can you tell us a little I, bit I, about I that? I do, I do. Um, I um, am working on a book and a recording project. Um, it's called "Ring Them Bells: The Gnostic Hymns of Bob Dylan," and my hmm. contention here is that Bob Dylan is a contemporary Gnostic. And mm. um, that is, uh, Gnosticism is one of those words that, that uh, uh, people have 
interest in, but they're never quite sure what it really mm-hmm. means. Um, there was a movement uh, really big in the second through third centuries of the Common Era, sort of a, a counter movement to Christianity called Gnosticism, mm-hmm. which was very black and white in terms of its theology. You know, um, that is not the Gnosticism. There's a more general sense of Gnosticism, which basically um, extols the role of the individual over the institutions of religion. And so, mm-hmm. um, so p- some contemporary folks who are considered to be Gnostics are people like um, Martin Heidegger, the, the mm-hmm. German uh-huh. philosopher, mm-hmm. or Carl Jung, who did a lot of work on, on Gnosticism. And so I see Dylan in some of his songs, in many of his songs, as expressing Gnostic themes. And so what I'm doing in my book is just, you know, kind of looking at those 16 or 17 songs of his, and then I'm putting uh, together a band that was be composed of oboe, piano, and cello, rather than guitar and harmonica. So it's a different sound, um, and hopefully that will be... Uh, coming out before I die. <laughs> it's not been a very... Not anytime soon. <laughs> well, I'm working on it. It's, it's, I've been having trouble finding a cellist. So if there's any cellist out there who uh, want to uh, you know, get in touch with me, please do. Uh, that's, uh, uh, I think I've got the other, other parts ready to go. Okay. I think maybe our friends over at um, Bellwood Bell Violins yeah. will, will know some cellists. Yeah. Right. We can ask them on the on the way out. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so you've got Bob Dylan, Pope Francis, Dalai um, Lama. the Dalai Lama. Yeah. The, 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 there's really a a sort of broad sweep to the kinds of books that that you're interested in and well, working we, on. We've we've been lucky, um, and we've we, you know our and our books have been praised and you know featured in you know like major publications and you know endorsed by people like Jimmy Carter, mm. and mm-hmm. Queen Noor of Jordan, and um, you know some uh, Cornell West and uh, Alice Walker. So, so we, you know, we do. I'm very proud of the work we've done and the work that we're doing, um, and um, it's and it's fun to do it here in Ashland, Oregon. Okay, wonderful. Yeah. Well, thank you, Steve, for visiting with us. Appreciate your time here. Uh, it's pleasure. been uh, it's, it's great been to a catch great, up. Great to catch up. Okay. Yeah. That's it for this month's edition of Literary Ashland. We'll be back with a live show in April, so and check our out. guest will be poet Amy McLennan for Poetry Month. All right. So Amy McLennan, last Friday in April. See you then. Bye. 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 